Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. There's nothing worse than making a big investment in technology just to learn that you're not sufficiently equipped to deploy it. From the many conversations I've had with leaders in the robotics space, this is one of the fears that seems to hold back manufacturers from getting started with automation. What if the robot crashes? What if the system gets stuck? Once my integrator walks out the door, will my people have the skills and documentation to run it? My guest today will talk about what you need to look for in an integrator so you'll hit the ground running with the support you need and without the in-house robotics expert that frankly, most manufacturers simply don't have. Let me introduce him. Malachi Greb is a visionary entrepreneur and leader in the automation industry. As the founder and CEO of Elite Automation, Malachi has effectively grown the company, hiring 25 skilled employees and earning a reputation as a prominent figure in the field. In recognition of his achievements, Malachi was named as one of the 30 under 30 by Connexus Indiana in 2022, and was also honored as the Ivy Tech Distinguished Alumnus of 2022. With a strong online presence on LinkedIn and over 16,000 followers, Malachi is dedicated to sharing his expertise and insights with the wider community. Beyond his success in business, Malachi has a larger mission to transform the education system and improve the way we live as humans. He is committed to freeing people from tedious and repetitive tasks through automation, one robot at a time. Malachi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. This is this goes for quite a few people that I wind up having on the show, but I feel like I uh, kind of know you already, even though we just talked for the first time a week or so ago. Because um, I see you everywhere on LinkedIn, and I see your face, and I see you know bits and pieces of your podcast episodes, and it's always funny sometimes when I think like, well, yeah, why haven't we done a podcast yet? So I'm glad we uh, finally got to connect and that we're going to do this right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Malachi, you launched Elite Automation, I think about four years ago, if I remember correctly. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and what drove you to make that entrepreneurial leap? Yeah, so I think a lot of the reasoning for my decision was just my own personal growth. I knew that I I wanted to be able to achieve you know the highest potential I could for myself, for my career. And the place that I came from, I worked there pretty much my entire career. I spent close to 10 years there. And doing system integration and building equipment and same thing we're pretty much doing right now. And, you know, the last couple of years of me being at that company, I was definitely given a lot of responsibility and I always took up a lot of responsibility. I learned electrical engineering. I learned doing risk assessments and, and all these different skill sets just for me just picking up on some gap that the company had. And, you know, it led me into doing project management, you know, through that project management, I got a little bit more involved with the like, management and some of the bigger decisions of the company and just the planning of how we executed on projects and and things along those lines. And, you know, I, I had the decision 
And at this point in time, I also had a, a fitness YouTube channel, right? And because I was looking at passive income streams and like how I could come up with passive income streams. And that was one of the avenues. So I actually did that for like three years while working in this automation job. And I came to the decision like, you know what? The YouTube thing was like real slow growth, saturated industry fitness. I'm just going to drop this whole entire YouTube fitness thing that I'm doing. And I'm going to sink every single extra second that I have into automation, right? And at that point in time, I was probably spending like 30, 40 hours a week on the fitness thing, just doing videos, video editing, things like that. So I said, let's drop it, put it all into manufacturing and automation. And so that's what I did. I spent the next few years like working 60 plus hour weeks, sometimes 80, 100 hour weeks, a ridiculous amount of work. And I got two years before I left there. And I decided there wasn't really the growth there that I really wanted to see. So I made the decision, okay, I'm going to spend this next year, give this company every single thing that I can to help the company grow and do whatever they'll allow me to do within the company to help it grow. And through that that year, uh, they definitely took on a lot of my ideas. I had a lot of things around execution and and going to like Ethernet-based systems where you know installations were more quicker. We could troubleshoot systems better, right? All these things got taken into account and we we implemented them. But I got to the end of that year and I was like, okay, but the company itself is still not really growing the way that I want it to. And you know, the leadership kind of also didn't carry the same mentalities of like being willing to work like. 80 hour weeks if they need to, and really just put in a lot of the hard work or do extracurricular things outside of, you know, work to, or not outside of work, but just put in the extra long hours to make sure the success of the business was there. And so I made that decision. This is one year out now from leaving and starting Elite Automation. And I said, you know what? I'm going to leave now. I knew at that point I was going to leave. I said, I'm going to take this next year to sit, analyze everything that I can analyze, look at the business, how it functions, look at some of the downfalls, right? And just be able to kind of prep myself for whenever I go start my own thing, like how I can prepare myself to be as ready as I potentially could be. So that's what I did. I got, you know, within a couple of years or a couple of months of starting Elite or leaving that company to start Elite and I gave them my project notice. I let them know, hey, this is the last project that I'm going to do with you guys after this project's complete. I'm branching off and starting my own company. And one, I was lucky enough that since I gave them that much lead time and notice, they granted me like a non-compete as long as I didn't touch their customers, but I was still okay to work in the area and, you know, in the industry, right? So we were able to have like a, a good relationship in the exit of that. And, uh, you know, overall, it was just, it was a good plan and a good way that I went about strategizing and and taking the time before leaving to start Elite. Very cool. Well, congrats, first of all. And what you just described sounds very familiar. I, you know, in my own world, doing kind of the same thing. For me, it was eh, about 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, I worked inside of a marketing agency the first few years of my career before branching off and starting Gorilla. It was a nights and weekends thing. It was similar, you know, got to the point where I was doing 60, 80 hours of work a week and ha- finally had enough that I, you know, my business partner, John, and I said, we could we could probably survive for three months if we made this leap now and we went for it, kind of never looked back. But I know those it's exciting times, but it's also probably a little bit scary when it's like, you know, you're giving up a, a salary or at least steady income of some sort to, you know, now you're on your own. What what was that like? Those, you know, especially those first few months or that first year is, and then how'd you start building a customer base? Because I mean, that's not easy. Like, you know, you, you have your expertise, but when you're not proven out on your own, it's kind of a chicken egg situation in terms of, you know, starting to build a customer base. So tell me a little bit about what that was like. 
Yeah, I mean, so that was definitely uh, super challenging. It's probably close to one of the biggest mistakes that I made, like with the transition, is I could have, I should have tried to build out more of a base and especially actual like relationships. So like a lot of the relationships that I did have, they were part of that non-compete that I couldn't go after them and try to perform work within the manufacturing facilities that I was already working in. So I was already kind of an engineer in the basement. I handled a lot of execution, a lot of internal things in the company. So I already wasn't extremely customer facing anyway. And, And so whenever, you know, I made that transition, I had to leave everybody behind. You know, I essentially was left with a no contact list. I did start working on LinkedIn. I got the LLC about six months before I quit and moved out on my own. And I started doing some LinkedIn outreach, but it wasn't enough buzz to generate really good leads at first, right? And I had multiple challenges. And this is one thing that actually hasn't really gotten brought up much at all. But the the mother of my kids actually left me one month before I branched out. So I already gave my notice and everything. And, and then she's like, see ya and left and was with some other guy. But that just added to like the challenge. So now I'm like trying to start a business. Now I have this emotional, like psychological thing going on with like, she's leaving split family now because I had three kids with her. So like that added like a lot of like psychological impact. COVID, this is January 30th or February 30th, one of the two, right? So this is like right when COVID hit really hard too. So super challenged with um, just being stuck at home, trying to work through how to get leads. Now you're not allowed to go inside of manufacturing facilities. They're only letting current vendors in the facility. And so that really kind of did propel my LinkedIn outreach and just really hustling and grinding to try to connect with as many people as I could virtually during this period of time that we were going through COVID and, and they weren't allowing, you know, new vendors in the facility. And, you know, I also was challenged with one other major thing that I was I was pretty set on not doing time and material work because I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't get caught up in a scenario where I got comfortable, right? Because I knew I could do time and material and, you know, the bare minimum for time and material for even a programmer, right? It's like $65 an hour and upwards into like 135, 150 an hour, depending on where you're at in California, it's like two close to $200 an hour. So you could easily like go and just, you know, contract out and, and make really, really good salary just being a programmer, right? And programming was actually one of my backgrounds. And I was really caught up psychologically with getting that I'd get caught up in the trap of getting comfortable with that money and just living a comfortable life because really my ambition was to is to grow, you know, one of the biggest automation companies in the world. And I knew I had to discipline myself and and force myself to like go down this capital projects road and make it so that I got over that psychological constraint that I was worried and concerned that I was going to go back to like a nine to five type of working style. So that drove me to one, turn down a lot of easy money. And don't get me wrong, like there were some times where time and material jobs were taken. Anytime I did time and material type of jobs, it was always to build a relationship. Even till today, I'll still even go on site and do programming jobs but it's to build the relationship. It's not to get the income of that programming gig. We just literally landed a, a simulation contract with Nissan. And th- it's solely for relationship purposes. Like the amount of money that comes in off of it's not even really worth it per se, but the relationship building out of it is extremely worth it. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing all that. You went through quite a bit there at once uh, during a time when you were trying to start your business. And I applaud you for, you know, 
not only making it through, but being here four years later and having built a company of 25 plus people, it's really, really impressive. So congrats there. And I can definitely relate to, you know, the discipline it takes to have to turn down work when you feel like it's not right and to, you know, challenge yourself to think beyond just the inventory of hours you have available in the day as being the cap on the way you can sell your your services. Cause I think you, you need to get into more of a value creation mindset and look for the right opportunities. So yeah, there's there's a lot, a lot of stuff you packed in there and a lot of things that I think a lot of us as early entrepreneurs have to have to figure out. So I feel you. <laughs> it's also hard to like convey like all the things that occur in, in like that short period of time, right? And there's so many like small caveats that just have like an impact and add to like the detail of of everything that occurs. Well, I got a automation expert here, you know, on, on this podcast with me, let's talk automation. So would love to, you know, kind of just hear a little bit about your experiences. I know you probably have walked the floor inside a lot of manufacturing facilities. You know, what are some of the biggest missed opportunities for automation that you're seeing out there today? So as you said, I probably walk a lot of uh, manufacturing floors and and this is definitely true. It's something that I do very, very frequently. And it's something that as we've grown as a company that I've continued to do. And I feel like it's extremely important because one, I get to physically see with my own eyes what's going on inside of manufacturing, what's going on inside of manufacturing facilities. So there's like an, almost an educational part for me personally. And through that education, now it's given me the ability to see all these different manufacturing facilities. I can kind of look at them in my mind and you know examine some of the gaps that are in the industry and some of the things that I see with different manufacturers where they could really grow and where they need to spend some investment. And, you know, one of the things that I see a lot is that sometimes we'll go into a facility and they'll take us to some piece of equipment they want us to automate. And we'll walk through their facility and, and this piece of equipment's all the way in the very back. So we get a full tour of the facility by the time we get back to the back and we get there and one or two employees who are doing some type of operation. And they're like, we want to automate this process. And fairly immediately, we can look at it and see if it's a an automated, if it's a process that has a good ROI. And a lot of times it's not. There's either something that's really complicated to automate. They're, they have a hundred different part SKUs. And I'll bring up to them and notice while we were walking through that facility, there was 10 people that were off to a side doing some simple task. And Again, there was 10 people there doing that operation. And I'll ask them, is there a reason why you're not automating that particular process? And you know, the, a lot of times they'll look at you and they'll be like, no, I really don't know why. Or maybe it was, yeah, somebody tried it one time 10 years ago and, and they couldn't figure it out. So we haven't tried to do it again. So there's a lot of opportunities that you can look and just see how many people are involved in a process and really be able to you know, analyze like where your highest ROI systems are at. And a lot of times it's very easy to be able to witness it. A lot of times there's so much data analysis on like what is the best thing to automate that people forget to look at some of the simple solutions. That makes a lot of sense. I would imagine there's experience this as, you know, just kind of a marketing guy looking into manufacturing that you see a lot of companies that just get set in their ways of doing things. They kind of like, we've always been doing it this way. And sometimes they're not even thinking about what they could change that would, you know, make significant operational improvements to their business or help, you know, add extra margin or just simplify things that they're doing. And it takes a pro to get in there and to point stuff out and to help them identify opportunities. So it's, I, I don't know, if you're like me, when I get to get inside and audit somebody's marketing, it's 
probably similar for you walking in a facility and, and you just see so many things that you know how to improve or, or fix. That's probably kind of fun, I bet. There's always, like you said, there's always a ton of things that you notice that can use changes or if they're willing to put the investment towards something that there would be a ton of opportunity that a lot of individuals in the industry aren't targeting. Well, let's talk about kind of the labor side of things for a moment here. You know, I, I think for a long time, the conversation around automation was, you know, around replacing expensive labor. And, you know, you look at the last four or five years and all of a sudden it's it's all about we need robots to do the, the jobs because there's no people to do it. And that's only going to keep getting worse from everything I, you know, hear from everyone out there. You look at all these these trends that are, you know, just this a challenge with boomers retiring and having a hard time bringing young people into the workforce and all this push for reshoring, but who's going to do the job, right? So tell us kind of, you know, as somebody right in the middle of this, what are your observations around just the intersection of automation and, and labor challenges? Yeah, so I mean, especially when when COVID was hitting, it's gotten a little bit better now. But definitely when COVID was hitting, like it completely took out you know the manufacturing industry. There were so many projects that that we had even gotten awarded just due to there being such a shortage of of people. And again, we've recovered from this a little bit, but it's still a challenge that a lot of these companies are facing where they have some job, they have some operation, and they're not able to to output the amount of product they need to output in a month. Or the, you know they're in a constraint where they, they have this product that they can sell and they have the capability to sell more of it, but their execution is behind. And so now they're, they're leaning even more towards you know automated systems to be able to fill some of these roles that are just not there in the market. I think there's a big shortage in especially young people wanting to go into, into this industry. I think there's probably even more of a gap in the manufacturing industry for people coming into it than ever. And a part of this is to, you know, technology. And, and now people are aspiring to new jobs that weren't a thing. Like people are, are thinking about becoming a TikToker and, you know, YouTube influencer and, and things like that, right? Which are not jobs that were, you know, initially thought about. And so I think even more efforts going to have to be put into, you know, getting people into this industry younger and deploying automation systems and, and spending the investment into automation systems and even processes that are more automatable and also create more user-friendly you know, setup scenarios and, and just more user-friendly equipment. I think that there's a definitely a big gap in some of the processes that are harder to automate that we could pair other tools with them, like let's say bin picking vision, right? If you add, let's say bin picking vision to a, a robotic system, it's a much more of an investment picking system alone. It's like 50K just for the cost of the equipment. And you can take something like that and, and paired with good instruction manuals can make it to where almost an operator could set up a new part number. So this is a brand new part number you've never ran. You're able to put it under the, the bin picking vision system. You're able to load in a 3D model and maybe there's some support from upper management. Hey, here's the file you need to load in or maybe it's a maintenance type of task. But after it's set up the first time, then it could be continually ran. And so in, instead of leaning on a company like ours to do this integration every time, we can integrate an initial system that has all the communication between the cameras and the robots. And and But it's a self-sufficient system, right? It's a system that the customer, the manufacturer, the operator can take and utilize it themselves with having to call on some integrator to come in and program new part numbers. And this is a really big you know, issue with 
companies that have a lot of SKUs, right? A lot of different part numbers, or they're, they're only going to run for, let's say, uh, CNC machining. They're only going to run this job for six hours or three days. There's not the ability to have an ROI for a job that's only going to run three days. But if you can load parts in front of a system and basically hit a cycle start button and be able to train and it automatically train itself to be able to you know, pick up and place in place in a very short period of time, now you do have a system that has an ROI. You know, I, I think one of the objections or challenges that I've heard from other automation experts like yourself is that, you know, what they hear sometimes from prospects or customers is that, well, it's this is just all too intimidating for us, or we've tried to install, you know, put systems in place for automation in the past, and, and we've made these big investments, and then nobody here knows how to run it, and we just feel like we spent all this money on something that we can't even use now. And so do you think that there is a misperception about, or do you think some, some companies are coming in there and they're just kind of leaving their customers out to dry? Like, how do you find that balance there to make sure that when you go deploy something, the customer is comfortable using it, it's easy enough, so you don't need a robotics expert in-house at the company to actually see the value in it? So I think it boils down to probably three main things that, one, you make the equipment very user-friendly. And that leads into the second thing. Sometimes that's technology, adding a bin picking vision system that then now makes it where the operator can do things more independently. And then the third one is documentation and access to that documentation. So this is like one of the big things that we also try to do as a company is we try to document every part of a system, everything from the PLC code to the robot code and hand these over to maintenance. We also keep these internally for our own use for troubleshooting, for the operators taking screenshots of the HMI, this button does this, if you wanna perform this operation, if the robot crashes and you need to do some task, that all of it's spelled out in documentation. And some of those things would be maintenance things, but there's other things that are operator things, You know, if the system gets stuck in this condition. And so one of the things that we've done, or a couple of things that we've done to combat this is, one, we install like VPNs in, on our systems, which gives us remote accessibility. So if there is a problem, we can directly remote it and see. But going a little bit more back into the documentation side of things, we add QR codes to the system. So that QR code has digital documentation associated with it that is updated. We have access to it. We give our customers access to it. And depending on customer security levels and depending on the employee of the company, their job title, right? So maintenance has access to different documentation that maybe an operator doesn't have access to, right? But these documentations are live living documentations that maybe they have a PDF version with them, but they also have a, a living document that's something like a Google Doc. And through that, anytime we go in and do troubleshooting, we update that doc to call out some type of like issue that was in the system. So Perfect example is what we do on like operator level. We there are some some of our welding customers. They have you know welding robots, and it's like a weld cell. The weld cell will go down sometimes, right? And their operators are you know taught to be able to jog the robot out of a certain position and get the system back and up and running in a good state again. And so they leave that task to their operator. So they're a little bit more skilled, a little bit more technical, and the they have the ability to jog a robot. Well, you know, one of the things that we did is let's say half of their employees was able to do this functionality, right? But the other half of their employees really didn't have this functionality. They were kind of going through the training to get there. So we basically wrote documentation that spelled out 
you know, each one of these recovery methods. So we sat with their company for a week and explored all the different downtime symptoms that they had, and then documented every single piece of code that they needed to go through to, to jog the robot, forward the robot out of its, you know, crash condition, also analyzing like what was the root cause of this. And, and through this process of, of building out this documentation for them, we also found that, hey, one of the root causes of why you guys are having issues is due to weld slag buildup on the fixtures. You guys are just not cleaning your fixtures enough. Every time a maintenance guy has to come over here and service this thing or an operator has to go in there and service this thing, almost always there's weld slag buildup on a fixture, right? So it also helped identify another problem but through the documentation, you know, we were able to find that that issue and that documentation gave the operators the ability to recover from many different scenarios that they they once didn't have the ability to recover from. Yeah, that's all really smart. I'm a huge fan of documentation as well because, you know, you just think of you can anticipate what challenges may come up and you can help arm people with the solve to those and then I think the other part of it that is just you know, people who are running these systems internally or who are in charge of this, you know, they start building up tribal knowledge. And when, you know, they leave and take a new job or, or, you know, somebody else needs to get subbed in for them, just massive inefficiencies all of a sudden can come to the surface because all that was tied up in somebody's brains rather than all this being documented and laid out. I love the QR code. I love the digitizing of that documentation. It, in some ways, it feels like a no brainer, but I think a lot of companies don't do this. They just don't do it. I mean, the accessibility is super important, especially for like an operator. They have no clue where their upper management's keeping documentation. You know, maybe there's a computer off to the side that sometimes has documentation on it. But when you slap a QR code right on like a control panel and an operator can just scan it with their phone and have the documentation right there, the accessibility is super important. Electrical drawings, like electrical drawings just go missing and nobody has electrical drawings for their machines. You know, if it's a QR code that's that's you know stickered inside the machine, you scan it. It's always a document that's living there. Well, Malachi, is there anything interesting you're working on right now, or have this year, or have on the horizon that you'd like to share? This year has been a pretty crazy year for us. I think we've over four xed this year, which is is kind of crazy in growth. I anticipate there's going to be likely a, a similar growth next year. You know, this year has been like fully packed with like travel and and just you know doing a ton of different things. We you know. I just spent like the past month in India and in the Philippines with visiting some of our remote team. And so that was a super cool experience. We flew over some of our customers over to India, which was also really cool. And we did an FAT over there of a pretty big system. You know, it was like pretty big for us, right? We're still a young company. So it was like roughly like a million dollar system or something like that. So that was like super exciting and, and being able to take them over there and then, you know, be able to to get that experience. And it's also, you know, there's a lot of conversation around reshoring but this is something that's that's made us very competitive. It's bringing more automation to the United States and, and doing it at a, at a lower cost, at a much more competitive. I mean, we're winning quotes for like every reason that you could think of. Yeah, we're winning them due to the cost competitiveness, due to delivery times. I mean, just those two things alone and like delivery times. Sometimes people come to us directly just because they're not able to get their systems quickly. We went into COVID, right? There was a then a shortage of components like PLCs and nobody could get, you know, PLCs or robots and and things were, you know, what used to be a four week lead time or, or maybe an eight week lead time. We're going out to 16 weeks. So like a system that you could deploy in just a few months was now, you know, at May of like having a PLC available to put in it or IO. IO was a big one that that was, you know, not on the market. 
So now systems are being completely stopped from deployment due to not having the hardware to be able to deploy the systems, right? And so this is definitely giving us an advantage. Having a global supply chain gives us an advantage. Sometimes we procure things from, from India. Sometimes we procure things from the U.S. And so that also gives us a dynamic of if there's ever a constraint in, in part numbers. Like a lot of time, a lot of the parts in that we were struggling with in the U.S., we didn't have those, especially Allen Bradley, we didn't have a lot of those same constraints in India. So it, it's kind of funny. And this is something that I've also experienced as well, that a lot of companies are not very interconnected globally, right? So if you have, I'll say Allen Bradley USA and you have Allen Bradley India, they're not very connected. There's probably a couple people in the company that are communicating to one, right? And they're maybe they're reporting to some CEO or, or something along those lines. But like a employee to employee basis, there's almost no communication. And so with that being said, like it creates like supply chain gaps where Alan Bradley's like, we can't even get this thing. And we're like, but Alan Bradley India has it right over here. But they won't sell it to like Alan Bradley USA, whether they have a full stock of, of the materials or not. This is also something that we want to tackle as we grow as a company with us having our remote employees like we very much have the anticipation to keep our employees like so connected that you can't even tell they're separate teams. And even our customers have gave us that feedback. They're like, I can't believe these people are on the other side of the world. Like, it seems like you guys know each other and, and you know, like our just our relationship and our bond is super tight, but we integrate like our on-site employees with our, our India remote employees who are logging into the exact same system and help troubleshoot and help get the system up and running. And, and so keeping that culture as we grow as a company is also something that's super important. So that way, as we become a bigger company, that we have this dynamic about us that you don't see throughout the world really anywhere. And especially, I would say we're probably the only automation company in the world doing this at the degree we're doing it. There's some automation companies that have divisions in, in multiple countries, but they're still not having the employee to employee connection the way the way that we currently do. That's really cool to hear you talk about it. And I can just tell by your energy how, you know, this is, sounds like some pretty exciting times for you. So yeah, congrats on on what you've done. And I'm excited to to watch your your business grow and, and progress. I'm sure we do this again in a year. I'll be talking about all kinds of new things and new challenges and a bigger team and and everything. So it's very cool. And so I, before we wrap, I want to, whenever I've got another fellow podcast host on, on my show, I always love, you know, letting you talk a little bit about that. You know, what's, what's the name of your show? What's it about? What would inspired you to do it? So the podcast is the manufacturing come up, you know, it was really premised around, you know, trying to do a give back for the industry. I wanted to have some type of avenue that, you know, somehow, you know, we could do something valuable, right. That we could get people in the industry. And, and so the topic the manufacturing come up is people's careers. And it's talking to, especially the younger crowd, but also maybe people who are maybe younger in their career, three, four, five years in, and they're looking, how do I navigate my career? How do I you know, get the next promotion? How do you also identify what it is that you want to do, right? And so we do that through telling people's stories and walking through their career and, and their life and, and the different decisions that they made to get to where they're at. And we interview everybody from, uh, you know, it's a full gamut of people who are maybe an engineer working on the shop floor to, 
you know, we've we've interviewed the CEO of, of you know, billion dollar companies. So it, it's really cool to get that dynamic of, of people in different stages in their careers and in different career avenues. You know, we've also uh, you know, interviewed marketers and stuff. And, and also uh, one big thing about this, too, that like goes back to me and in my heart is that I didn't have much guidance growing up. It took me a lot of time and on my own, basically, to figure out like, you know, life and, and doing the right thing and just like living a straight edge life. Right. And so I didn't have that guidance. And and so like the manufacturing come up really created a space where, you know, we can give guidance to other people who maybe, you know, not have guidance. I love that. I think it's a great niche you're filling there. There's a need for that kind of guidance for sure. So very cool. If you're anybody listening here, make sure you check out the manufacturing come up and, um, you like this show, I'm sure you'll, you'll like plenty of those episodes as well. So very cool. And you might just see Joe on there soon. Hey, I'm, I'm up for it, man. I love being a guest as well. It's fun to get on the other side of the mic and um, let people ask me questions too. So would love to. Cool. Malachi, great conversation today. I'm really glad we did this. Uh, can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about what you're doing at Elite Automation? So I mean, primary place to communicate with me is uh, LinkedIn. That's where I spend the majority of my time. And uh where I like to discuss the most things. So find me on LinkedIn, our website, leadautomationusa.com. You can also find everything else from my LinkedIn. You can find the manufacturing come up. You can find just our our automation, lead automation page for automation related topics, robotic welding, material handling, palletizing, assembly, things like that. So we love to talk about a lot of things that are manufacturing career related and, and also automation and ROI in automation. Fantastic. Well, Malachi, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. You bet. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.